Welcome, welcome, welcome to this week's episode of the American Serial Killer Guidebook with your intrepid hosts, Elton and Cherish Morgan. Hey everyone, I'm Elton Morgan. I'm Cherish Morgan. And we're, we're the, the Morgans. Morgans. <laughs> welcome to episode two of the American Serial Killer Guidebook. This week we'll be discussing a lesser known but no less brutal serial killer by the name of Larry William Eiler a.k.a. the Highway Killer or the Interstate Killer, who enjoyed butchering young gay men across two states and multiple counties. Born the 21st of December, 1952, in Crawfordsville, Indiana, and openly gay himself, Eiler was a self-loathing homosexual who spent years at war with who he was at a time when homosexuality was not well accepted in the Midwestern states. All of his victims were found with their pants pulled down, exposing their genitals, leading police to assume they had engaged in sex either shortly before or after their deaths. Since they were found partially nude time and again at each crime scene, police believed they were looking for a member of the gay community or someone with a deep-seated hatred of them, since most of the victims were known homosexuals or male prostitutes who frequented established gay bars and hookup spots. Make sure to stay tuned after the episode to find out which killer we'll be covering next week, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter, at task g underscore instagram at underscore task g underscore and our the american serial killer guidebook facebook page to stay updated on everything we have going on and to learn more about your favorite american serial killers we also like to post little tidbits about different killers not widely known and not included in our episodes as a little something extra for our social media family who's ready to find out just how deranged and brutal isla really was during the evisceration of his victims yeah let's get this horror show on the road. Born in Crawfordsville, Indiana, Eiler is the fourth child of parents who divorced when he was two years old. His father was an emotionally and physically abusive alcoholic, and after his parents' divorce, he bounced around from babysitters, foster families, or was simply left with his older sibling, who was only 10 years old, while his mother worked two jobs as a waitress and factory worker. Eiler's mother married three more times in 1957, 1960, and 1972, with all ending in divorce due to her husband's all being alcoholics who physically and emotionally abused her and her children. Dropping out of high school in his senior year, he worked odd jobs for several years before earning his GED. In spite of occasional enrollments in college between 1974 and 1978, Eiler left without a degree, eventually moving to Chicago. Eiler realized his homosexuality at an early age, but while openly gay, friends and relatives were unaware of his struggle with his homosexual tendencies, which fascinated but also repulsed him. He would eventually learn to take his sex forcefully and then to eliminate the evidence of his shame. While driving along 7th Street in Terre Haute, Indiana on August 3, 1978, Larry Eiler picked up 19-year-old Marine Craig Long, who was hitching. Eiler promptly propositioned Long for sex, who told Eiler in no uncertain terms that he wasn't gay, and tried to jump out of Eiler's pickup truck, but before he could get out, Eiler put a knife to Long's chest. This prompted Long to tell him, hey man, I don't have any money, with Eiler replying, I don't want your money, before driving him to an empty rural field, then telling him to take off his clothes, then handcuffing him and tying his ankles at knife point. Eiler then told him to get in the back of his truck, but once Eiler started taking off his own clothes, Long saw his chance to flee and took it yelling, You queer! But Eiler was too quick, and Long's ankles were bound, allowing Eiler to catch up, stabbing Long in the chest and puncturing his lung. 
Wong knew his only chance of escaping death was to play dead, so that's exactly what he did. And once Eiler got dressed and left, Wong managed to make it to a nearby house where those who were home called emergency medical personnel. Now this is the even stranger part of this mess. Eiler drove to the house after realizing Long had survived and made it there just as Long was receiving first aid. He gave the deputy on scene the handcuff key and said he stabbed Long accidentally while engaging in some rough sexual activity. Long denied these claims and Eiler was arrested during the search of his truck. Deputies found a hunting knife used in the alleged assault, a whip with a metal tip, a butcher knife, and another set of cuffs, a, a sword, and of all things, tear gas. One, where in the hell did he get tear gas? And two, what exactly was he planning on doing with it? Eiler was all set to plead guilty to aggravated battery rather than attempted murder for some reason, but less than three weeks after the initial assault, on August 23, 1978, he bonded out of jail on a $10,000 bail, raised by the friends of the psychopath. That same day, Eiler's friend and father figure, Robert David Little, offered Long a check for $2,500 to drop the charges, which he ultimately did. Eiler immediately changed his plea to not guilty and was acquitted on November 13th, with nothing more than a court cost of $43. Just think of the lives that could have been saved if Craig Long would have refused the $2,500 offered by Robert David Little. I mean, I find it hard to believe that the guy was bound and stabbed in the lung and all it took for him to forget pressing charges was a merely 2500 bucks. So for less than three grand, this guy got away with attempted murder, which kick-started his new brutal pastime of killing young gay men. Larry Eiler met 20-year-old John Dobrovolsky in August of 1981. Damn, that's a mouthful who was married and lived with their two biological and three foster kids in Chicago. With his wife's blessing, Dobrovolsky began a sexual relationship with Eiler, who they let live with them on weekdays for paying one-third of the rent. Although Dobrovolsky was married, Eiler was possessive, which led to quite a few physical fights between the two, with Robert Little sometimes instigating the fights due to his being jealous of Eiler and Dobrovolsky's long-term relationship. And if you'll remember, Robert Little is the one who paid his bail, who was his father figure and mentor, and and uh, his his other buddy who you know was kind of old and and it was hard. He was gay as well, and it was hard for him to find anyone to have sex with him. So that was kind of part of what uh, Larry Eiler's job was was to bring the young men home. But he got upset because he didn't like the fact that. Eiler was having sex with Dobrovolsky, and so he used to kind of pick and start fights and stuff. But anyway, Eiler worked as a house painter during the weekdays he was living with the Dobrovolskys, but he spent his weekends working as a liquor store clerk in Greencastle, Indiana, and at the time he was living at Little's Terre Haute residence, but that was just on the weekends. Possibly Eiler's first murder victim, who was not included in his official kill count for some reason, and I noticed doing research online and reading the books and everything that this young man was only mentioned maybe twice. And I don't understand why. Maybe the, the authors didn't go deep enough or what, but he definitely needs to be included in this. Because as far as pretty much anything I could tell, and I went deep, this young man was his first victim. Right? And he was 14 years old. His name was Del Boyd Baker. He was a black teenage male prostitute who frequented the Monument Circle area of Indianapolis. 
Okay, Baker's strangled body was found dumped on a roadside north of Indianapolis on October 3rd of 1982. This is something I've never understood, the killing of children. How can what's supposed to be a human being not only hurt a 14-year-old boy, but kill him and dump him on the side of the road like he's garbage? Oh All right, you know, I mean, these are children. What? I understand he's a serial killer and everything, but I, I just never understood how someone could hurt children. It, it, it just yeah, me neither. <laughs> this is someone's little boy. All right, there's a mother or a father or a sibling somewhere out there, and they're waiting on this kid to come home. He's lying dead on the side of the road because some fucking animal wanted to satisfy his need to kill. Or his sexual urges, and he, he hated who he was so much that to be able to forget about what he did, he had to kill the people that he had sex with. And this was a boy. Larry Eiler's fetish for killing nearly came to an end on October 12th of 1982, as he lured 21-year-old Craig Townsend into his truck near Crown Point, Indiana. All right, after being drugged and beaten comatose by Eiler, he was abandoned naked in a rural field, resulting in physical damage from exposure, but the, the man survived. Before detectives could finish their investigation, Townsend escaped from the hospital and disappeared. You know, I don't blame the kid for being scared, but if he would have waited and given detectives the information they needed, Eiler would have been off the streets, and the next victims could have been spared. He's the second person to survive Eiler. That still didn't result in him being taken off the streets for good. You know, first it was Craig Long, and then now Craig Townsend. And it's it's a coincidence they're both named Craig, but this is the second time that this man... This is the luckiest fucking serial killer I've ever seen. You know, other than maybe uh, Ted Bundy with his multiple escapes. But, I mean, this guy... the. <laughs> Police had every chance to take him out over and over again. All right, in October 23rd of the same year, less than three weeks after finding Del Boyd Baker, the body of 19-year-old Stephen Crockett was found in a field outside of Lowell, Indiana, having been stabbed and aggressive 32 times with four of the wounds puncturing his head. You know how hard you gotta stab somebody in the fucking skull to puncture their head, their skull? Oh my God. Hard. I mean, the 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 uh, that's solid bone. That's a an eighth to a quarter of an inch of solid bone. Yeah. And as many times as he stabbed these people, there's a serious passion in that. You know what I mean? Usually, you want to kill somebody, you do it quick, three or four quick thrusts, you're done, you're gone. He fucking just obliterated these people with dozens of stab wounds and that shows how much anger and yes how much anger and hatred he had towards yeah. his own sexuality yeah you know if you if you want to be gay be gay love who you are be you know embrace that shit don't fucking murder people because you can't stand to be who you are you can't stand to look in the mirror yeah. you know fucking ridiculous yeah. Two weeks later, the body of Robert Foley was found dead by stabbing it in a field outside of Joliet, Illinois on November 4th. But he was incorrectly attributed to Larry Eiler by the Central Indiana Multi-Agency Investigation Team, who later removed him from Eiler's list of victims. All right. While doing research, both in the books and online, there were a, quite a few people that included Robert Foley in Eiler's list. But we have definitively proven 
through our research that Robert Foley was not one of Eiler's victims. Okay, so it's even in the uh, the police reports and the uh, the charging documents whenever he was indicted. So if anyone anybody wants to double check, they can go back and look through there. All right, so. Eiler spent Christmas dumping the body of 25-year-old John R. Johnson in a rural field just outside of Belshaw, Indiana. Only three days after Christmas, the body of 21-year-old John Roach, who had disappeared three days before Christmas, was found near Belleville and had been the victim of a frenzied knife attack. All right, so he kidnapped somebody three days before Christmas. He spent Christmas Day dumping somebody's body that they found... Three days after Christmas, I mean, the guy is just a killing fucking machine. Mm. He's just fucking picking people up. Boom, 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 boom. Kill, kill, kill. Dump, dump, dump. And it just the cycle just continues. I mean, is if you'll notice throughout all of the information that we're providing, his his kill rate is increasing, becoming much more frequent. Right. All right, and check this out. On the same day the body of 23-year-old Stephen Agin was discovered in a wooded area north of Newport, Indiana, Agin had left his mom's house on December 19th to see a movie and was not seen again until his body was discovered. Okay? So, three days after Christmas, the body of 21-year-old John Roach is found near Belleville. All right? The same day Stephen Agin is found in north of Newport, Indiana. I mean, the guy's getting around, right? And on the and Agin has been missing for almost a week before Christmas, right? He left his mom's house on December 19th to see a movie and wasn't seen again until his body was discovered. So that means that the guy went to go see a movie or he lied to his mom, didn't tell him where tell her where, you know, he was really going and met up with with Eiler somewhere and that was it. Investigators believe that Agin was killed in a nearby farm shed where pieces of his flesh were found on nails that were embedded in the walls. All right, his throat was cut, and police believe he was hung upside down and gutted like a deer. He was found wearing white tube socks that weren't his. This guy right here, Steve Agin, is the picture that I showed you, babe, of the guy who was split open and his he was gutted. He looked All, like a gutted deer. Yeah, he was. There was an eight-inch gash running from his belly below his belly button all the way up to his throat, and it was probably ten inches by the time it was up at his chest. I mean, he was completely. He wasn't just sliced. He was ripped open ripped, and gutted, chopped, gutted. Yeah, it's like it looked like everything had been removed out of this guy. Mm-hmm. He was just meat. Right. I don't know what the fuck's got to be going through your mind to do this to somebody. Yeah, it was pretty. And the picture is available online. You can find it on Google. Uh, but before you go looking at the Larry Eiler crime scene victim photos, I recommend that if you don't have a strong stomach, avoid them. And even if you do have a strong stomach, maybe don't look at them because they can definitely kind of keep you up. All right, on March 4th of 1983... All right, the body of Ed, Edgar Underkofler was found outside of Danville, Illinois, and he had been physically eviscerated like the rest of Eiler's victims. Only this time, he also had his shoes and socks removed and replaced with a pair of white tube socks that he didn't own. This is never explained. 
in in all of the case files related to Larry Eiler, this whole tube sock thing is never explained. I don't I don't understand it, but I'm adding it in there because it is of interest. All right, so on March 21st, you know, less than three weeks later, same year, 1983, Baskin's Robbins, Baskin Robbins ice cream shop owner, 26-year-old Jay Reynolds of Lexington, Kentucky. All right, he left his wife and nine-week-old son to close the store for the night. His body was found the next day at the bottom of a ditch, and he had been stabbed repeatedly. Dr. Richard Pless, the forensic pathologist who had performed the autopsies on Stephen Agin, John Roach, and Edgar Underkofler, that recognized the similarities in all three deaths and called the Indiana State Police, recommending a centralized investigation into the murders. But they chose to ignore him and left matters to the local police to investigate individually in their respective jurisdictions. A month later, on April 8th, 28-year-old Gustavo Herrera's body was found on a building worksite covered with, covered with debris and garbage. He was a closeted gay man with two children who was known to frequent gay bars. For reasons known only to himself, Eiler felt the need to cut off Herrera's right hand, which police found nearby to his body. A week later, and only a couple of miles away from the Herrera dump site, the body of a 16-year-old Irvin Gibson and his dog were found in a wooded area covered with branches and debris. That's crazy. He not only killed a 16-year-old boy, but he killed his dog, too. Mm -hmm. Which makes me think that maybe his dog was trying to protect him. Right. And so he had to kill them both. Right. Gibson is the second child victim of Eilers, showing he's more than willing to kill anyone who catches his fancy, regardless of age. On May 9th in a creek south of Chicago, the body of a young black man, 18-year-old Jimmy Roberts, was found with his pants pulled down around his ankles. He had been raped and was stabbed a horrific 30 times. The same day in Henderson County, the body of a 21-year-old street hustler, Daniel McNeve, was found with his entrails hang hanging out and stabbed 27 times. Their bodies were also sent to Dr. Richard Pless, who again recognized the killer's style and reached out to the state police a second time, only this time they were more than willing to listen and take action. The Central Indiana Multi-Agency Investigative Team was formed under Lieutenant Jerry Campbell. His team of over 50 officers compiled a list of unsolved crimes involving young men and boys, and by June 6th, they had a suspect, thanks to Thomas Henderson, a former lover of Eilers, who named him as the man they were looking for. Police finally had enough information to put Eiler under surveillance, but did not before the skeletal remains of another victim were found in Ford County, Illinois on July 2nd, 1983. On August 31st, 1983, Ralph Calise was found dumped 30 miles from his home near Lake Forest, Illinois, and had been dead less than 12 hours. Unlike the others, his body was still bound with clothesline and surgical tape, with his pants pulled down around his ankles, and he had been stabbed 17 times. You know, that 17 times seems like a recurring number. In all my research, I never did find any kind of correlation between that number and Eiler, but a lot of his victims were stabbed 17 times. He was last seen the night before leaving his girlfriend's house to go out and party, but the location where his body was found was close to where the bodies of Gustavo Herrera and Irvin Gibson were found earlier that year. Another piece of the puzzle was found when police realized that Khaleesi, 
only lived two doors down from Herrera with Crockett and Johnson living very close by. By this time, the Illinois State Police were putting together the pattern and decided to join the Indiana Task Force who, with the assistance of the FBI, developed a psych profile of the killer that matched Eiler to a T. The task force then issued a bolo for Eiler, and on September 30, 1983, he was spotted by the state trooper, Kenneth Burley, when Eiler and a hitchhiker named Daryl Hayward were seen walking back to the Eiler's illegally parked truck on the side of the state highway. When questioned, Eiler said that they had stopped to relieve, relieve themselves, but Daryl Hayward told the officer that Eiler had paid him $100 for bondage-style sex, and they decided to go on to an old farm shed known to Eiler when Hayward felt too exposed on the side of the highway, which probably saved his life. Eiler was arrested for solicitation of prostitution, and after searching his truck, police found a bloody knife and noticed his boots matched plaster casts taken at the police at the scene. After testing the blood on the knife and finding it matched that of Ralph Calise, they tested the tire tread of his truck against the plaster cast taken at the crime scene and those matched as well. That same day, two investigators from the Central Indiana Multi-Agency Investigation Team interviewed Eiler and explained to him that he was a suspect in a series of murders due to a phone call from a source they refused to identify. Eiler was very cooperative answering their questions with the exception that he refused to discuss his sexuality. He denied taking part in any of the murders and agreed to have his mugshot and fingerprints taken. A polygraph at a future date determined by the task force and the forensic examination of the truck where they found nylon rope, handcuffs, a hammer, not one but two baseball bats, a mallet, and surgical tape, along with the other items mentioned earlier. You would think that this would have been a slam dunk, but somehow Larry Eiler was released with his truck. Fearing his knowledge that he was now suspect in the series of murders, task force investigators obtained an October 1st search warrant for the home of his mentor, Robert, Robert David Little, who paid attack survivor Craig Long $2,500 to drop the charges against Eiler. Investigators went in during the dawn hours of October 2nd and found credit card receipts and phone bills showing that not only was Eiler in the vicinity of multiple murders when they happened, but that Eiler made collect calls to Little shortly after the times investigators believed the murders took place. Eiler's truck was again impounded on October 2nd, and he was brought to Waukegan to be interviewed by Special Investigator Dan Collin, where he admitted his love of bondage and that he often argued with John Dobrovolsky and his wife, and that John sometimes physically abused him, but denied any involvement in the murders. Once the investigator mentioned that after double-checking, the tire tracks and boot prints from the Khaleesi crime scene matched his tires and boots. He still denied involvement, but when Colin mentioned that he thought Eiler was finding and stabbing victims as a way of getting revenge whenever John Dobrovolsky hit him, it made him wince. Detectives had no choice but to release Eiler on October 4th when Eiler retained Chicago attorney Kenneth Dickowski, who after confirming police had insufficient evidence to formally charge Eiler with murder, filed a $250,000 civil suit against the Lake County Sheriff's Office and the Indiana State Police for violating Eiler's civil rights and the 14th Amendment. On October 6th, investigators sent the tire and boot prints to the FBI for a closer analysis, and the FBI found more blood in his boots, and that the boots matched the prints found at the scene on four points of wear and weight displacement. Also, the tires on Eiler's truck were from two different manufacturers that precisely matched those from the crime scene by manufacturer and tread depth. 
On October 27th, investigators from both jurisdictions had a meeting to determine if they had sufficient evidence to formally charge Eiler in the death of Ralph Calise, and they decided they did. On October 28th, they got a warrant to draw hair and blood samples from Eiler to compare to the evidence already retrieved from his truck, and they collected them from Eiler the next day while he was at court for his civil suit, which I'm sure pissed him and his attorney off. On October 29, 1983, Eiler was formally charged with the murder of Ralph Calise, and his bond was set at $1 million. That's a lot of fucking money. November 1st, investigators obtained a second warrant to search Robert Little's residence, and although they took 221 items, none of them belonged to any of the victims. A key they found did exactly match a key that was found under the body of Stephen Agin that was later discovered to be to an old office of Eilers from 1982. November 12th, Eilers switched attorneys to David Shippers. Here's where shit gets really crazy. Eilers' new attorney convinced Lake County Circuit Judge William Block to rule that although Eiler was legally arrested on his initial arrest of soliciting prostitution on the side of the highway with Hayward, the evidence collected was done so without probable cause, making his detention at the time illegal. After a few more hearings on motions to suppress, on February 1, 1984, Judge Block determined that all evidence was based on the initial illegal gatherings of evidence. So the chain of search warrants and subsequent evidence were all suppressed with the only evidence deemed admissible being the tire impressions and hair and blood samples. The judge also lowered his bail to $10,000 resulting on Eiler walking free on February 6th. His family and once again Robert David Little paying his bail fees with Eiler restricted from leaving the state of Illinois. A month after getting out of jail, Eiler permanently moved to an apartment in Rogers Park, Chicago, with the furniture, rent, and a new set of truck tires supplied by Robert Little. Even after all he had been through and knowing the authorities were watching him, Eiler couldn't go six months before old habits took over. On the 19th of August, 1984, 16-year-old Daniel Bridges was lured to Eiler's apartment and paid for sex. Once there, Bridges was bound to a chair and beaten and stabbed to death before being drained of blood and dismembered in Eiler's bathtub. Eiler disposed of the body parts in six trash bags and threw them in the complex's trash dumpsters, where they were found on the morning of August 21, 1984, by janitor Joseph Bala. Once reported to police, they questioned the other janitors, one of which had seen Larry Eiler dumping them into the evening before. By this time, Eiler's name was well known amongst Chicago police who recognized it immediately, and Chicago Police Department Captain Francis Nolan told four four officers to detain anyone in apartment 106, regardless of who it is. Minutes later, Eiler was arrested along with his longtime lover, John Dobrowolski, who was released a short time later. Over the next two days, August 21st and 22nd, forensic investigators using luminol found large amounts of blood had been cleaned from Eiler's bathroom and had been very recently painted. Unfortunately for Eiler, investigators also found blood on a mattress, chair, a sofa, and under the floorboards at the entrance to the bathroom they had missed when attempting to clean up the evidence. Daniel Bridges' bloody clothes were also found around the apartment along with Eiler's fingerprints inside and outside of the bags used to dispose of the body. 
Detectives located a hacksaw and blades in the utility room along with a receipt showing Eiler had recently purchased the blades used to dismember Bridges in the bathtub. Once Eiler was formally charged with Bridges' murder on August 22nd, he had the nerve to say his fingerprints got on the bag when he moved them out of the way while dumping his own garbage. But investigators weren't buying it because he had no explanation for how they got inside the bags. After getting spanked at their earlier attempt at prosecuting Eiler, new prosecutors Mark Ricosi and Rick Stock were not taking any chances. To get the death penalty, they had to seek aggravating circumstances. So on July 1st, 1986, the first day of his trial, in addition to the murder charge, they charged Eiler with felonious aggravated kidnapping, unlawful restraint, and concealment of Bridges' body. Eiler was tried before Cook County, Illinois Judge Joseph Urso, and being flat broke, was appointed two public defenders named Claire Hilliard and Tom Allen, with attorney David Shippers providing support counsel pro bono. Uh, once again, this David Shippers decides to step in, and not only did he try to sue the police for 250000 on behalf of Eiler, but now he's providing a services pro bono, so that makes me think there was something else going on. No one volunteers like this just to help somebody who, there's plenty of evidence, hard evidence, proving he's a killer. Uh, there was some other aspect to their relationship that, that never came out, I'm thinking. But during opening statements, Prosecutor Mark Ricosi stated that when a janitor had asked him what he was throwing away, Isla responded with, some shit from my apartment. In defense counsel's opening statement, David Shippers said that although Eiler was seen handling the bags with Bridges' body, no one had actually seen him kill Bridges, and that two other men in, had been in Eiler's apartment from August 19th to the 21st. So basically, okay, he handled the body, and it was in his apartment, and the blood and everything, it proves that he was killed there, but nobody actually saw him do it, so that means he couldn't have done it. Just because there are a couple other guys that had been there over a two-day period, that's the most ridiculous defense I've ever heard. <laughs> he maybe should have gone with a better attorney than Mr. Pro Bono. Also, a forensic search of Eiler's truck turned up no evidence that Bridges had been in it. And as for the aggravated kidnapping charge, no one could prove that Bridges had not gone into Eiler's apartment willingly. Prosecution's first witness was Robert Little himself who said he was at Eiler's apartment between August 17th and 19th, although he said he went home the night of Bridges' murder. The doctor who performed the autopsy on Bridges testified it was the most heinous act he'd ever seen and that the wounds precisely matched the hacksaw blades found in Eiler's apartment. But on cross-examination, he said the victim had alcohol and cocaine in his system, meaning he may have entered Eiler's apartment voluntarily. On the 4th of July, janitor Albert Dickey testified that on August 20th, he saw Eiler make between 8 to 12 trips to his storage locker at the complex, and when asked, Eiler said he was getting tools for a job. But then a few hours later, he saw Eiler make three different trips to the garbage dumpster with the specific bags. July 7th, John Dobrovolsky testified that the day Bridges disappeared, he called Eiler and tried to come over. But Eiler said no, and when he insisted, Eiler chose to come to his house looking freshly showered and not interested in having sex, which told Dobrovolsky that Eiler was with another man. And he knew that Robert Little had been at Eiler's apartment. Robert Little told the court that he left 15 minutes before the last time Bridges was seen alive on August 19th and said that he had driven to Terry Hot to pay a tax bill, which he had a receipt for, but prosecutors believed it was simply to provide an alibi. 
Closing arguments were presented on July 9th with prosecutors outlining Bridges' injuries and Eiler's attempts at covering up the evidence. Defense attorney David Shippers presented the jury with the fact that the bondage injuries to Daniel Bridges were consistent with sex and could not be ruled out as consensual, while Robert Little could have been the killer because the defense said he didn't leave until 2.45 a.m. in the morning of the murder and used a tax bill that wasn't due for two months as an alibi to try to convict his client. It only took the jury three hours to return a verdict of guilty of aggravated kidnapping, unlawful restraint, concealment of Bridges' body, and most importantly, murder. Eiler's face showed no emotion the entire time, like psychopathic serial killer he is. On September 30th, prosecutors allowed the four people familiar with Eiler's violent nature including the survivors to his prior attacks to testify to his brutality and unforgiving nature, while defense counsel presented four character witnesses, two of which were his mother and sister who begged the court for his life. On October 3rd at 10 a.m., Judge Urso, after battling with his own religious beliefs, addressed the court and sentenced Eiler, saying, The senseless and barbaric murder of a 16-year-old boy, a killing which was so brutal it defies description, shows me your complete disregard for human life. If there ever was a person or situation for which the death penalty is death penalty is appropriate, it is you. You are an evil person. You truly you truly deserve to die for your acts. I hereby sentence you to death for the murder of Danny Bridges, committed during the course of his aggravated kidnapping. Eiler was transferred to death row at Pontiac Correctional Center in Illinois, where he underwent extensive psychological testing. And in May of 1988, he filed a formal appeal against his conviction, stating that. Although he dismembered and dumped Daniel Bridges' body, Robert David Little was the person who actually committed the murder while he was out of the apartment. He also said that Little was the one who drove Bridges to his apartment and that Little's vehicle was never forensically tested, nor his alibi that he was paying a tax bill corroborated. The appeal wasn't formally heard until May of 1989, but was dismissed the following October, with his initial execution date set for March 14, 1990. In November of 1990, Otter was assigned a new attorney, Kathleen Zellner, from the Illinois Appellate Defender's Office to handle his appeals, but that same month, Prosecutor Larry Thomas of Vermilion County obtained the physical evidence from Eiler that was previously suppressed by Judge Block, and he was going to present it to an Indiana grand jury to see if it was solid enough to indict Eiler on the December 1982 murder of Stephen Agin. Hearing he was about to be indicted, Eiler made an agreement to confess and testify against Little to avoid another death penalty, saying that Agin was killed by Robert Little with his assistance. Prosecutors made the agreement and Eiler provided a 17-page confession on December 4, 1990. Eiler pleaded guilty on December 13 and testified against Little after taking a polygraph stating Little was the actual killer, which the polygraph verified as truth. Little was arrested on December 18th and charged with Agin's murder, while on the 28th, Eiler received 60 years for his part in the killing. All right, on December 4th, he provided the confession. He pled guilty on the 13th and was sentenced on the 28th. That's literally three weeks from the time he confessed to the time he was convicted and sentenced. Three weeks. That seems a little rushed. You know what I mean? Anyway, uh, they gave him 60 years. Not really much on top of a death sentence. 
In January of 1991, Eiler made an offer that he would confess to 20 more murders and provide detailed information if the state of Illinois would commute his death sentence. And, give, and he gave them until the end of January, but they ultimately refused his offer. Robert Little began his trial on April 11, 1991, in Vermilion County, where Eiler testified that the two of them would often bring men to Little's house for bondage sex, and how on December 19, 1982, they picked up Agin with promises of alcohol and eventually got him to agree to a bondage photo session for money. Eiler said they took Agin to an old farm shed in the country, and after tying his hands and securing them above his head to a beam, Little told Eiler to get out his knife before Little started stabbing Agin. Once Eiler started stabbing, he said that Little began taking Polaroids and masturbating before finally telling Eiler, okay, kill the motherfucker. On April 12th, Dr. John Pless, who had done Agin's autopsy on December 28, 1982, said that he believed that Agin was killed prior to December 21st of 82. Defense attorney James Boyles said his client couldn't have done it because Little had been at his mother's in Florida the week before Christmas, every year since 1958. And his mother corroborated that, although it was disproven by prosecutors who provided a receipt from an auto garage in Terre Haute dated December 21, 1982. And a phone bill proved a phone call had been made from Little's house that same day. So... He can't be at his mother's house in Florida the week before Christmas if he's taking his car to the shop and making phone calls at his house on the 21st, literally four days before Christmas. So that all blew up in their face. At least the prosecutors thought it did. Little's defense refused to let him testify, and closing arguments were delivered on April 17th. Prosecutors detailed the murder as a performance orchestrated by Little to satisfy his sadistic urges, and the Eiler had nothing to gain by impl implicating Little since he had already admitted to his part in the murder. The defense said that Little was a victim of Eiler trying to commute his death sentence by introducing another murder to give prosecutors another conviction, while getting revenge on Little for testifying against him in Eiler's earlier trial, and finished by asking the jury if they would convict an honorable man based on Larry Eiler's word. And as far as I'm concerned, um, even with the evidence they had against Little, um, mentioning the fact that it was very likely Eiler trying to get revenge on Little for testifying against him, and uh, then asking them if they're going to take the word of Larry Eiler to convict this guy, that really does provide reasonable doubt. I mean, it, it really does. You know, I mean... The fact that Little testified against Eiler, now all of a sudden Eiler's testifying against Little and making accusations, that casts a lot of doubt right there. So, it took seven hours for the jury to acquit Robert David Little on April 17th, who smiled, he fucking smiled, while Stephen Agin's parents and brother ran from the courtroom. Heartbroken, I'm sure. Little held a press conference where he said how glad he was everything was over and stated that he was returning to his teaching position at Indiana State University. I don't know about anyone else, but I think it says a lot about that school when they're willing to let this man come back to school to work and teach students after everything that came out about him and the possibility that he was guilty of any part of the crimes he was accused of. Okay, I understand that legally and technically he was found not guilty, so there is nothing to stop the school from allowing him to come back. But it just kind of paints kind of a negative picture 
and cast cast the school in kind of a dark light. Is is that a thing? Dark light. <laughs> it kind of casts a cloud over the school, thinking that this man would be charged with these things, and then, when found innocent, let come back to school. Okay. Just playing devil's advocate here. He definitely had balls to return to the classroom and then look all of his co-workers and his students in the eyes again with people wondering if he had gotten away with murder not once but multiple times. And I can, I just don't understand how this guy could stand in front of a classroom full of students, everyone in the classroom knowing what he had been accused of and that he had just been acquitted of murder, multiple murders, knowing what they were thinking about him and still not caring. What kind of person just doesn't give a shit what anybody else thinks? Most people would be humiliated yeah. and, and ashamed and, and unable to face people. Yeah. You know who is not phased by something like that? A psychopath. Fucking psychopath. That's exactly right. The Illinois executioner was cheated of his day with Eiler when he died of AIDS-related complications on March 6, 1994 at Pontiac Correctional Center after being seriously ill for about 10 days. Two days after Eiler's death, his attorney, Kathleen Zellner, held a press conference where she revealed the names and details of 17 people Eiler confessed to killing to ease his conscience on his deathbed. When he made his earlier offer to get his death sentence commuted, he offered 20 names, 20 murders that he was willing to provide details for. On his deathbed, he only provided 17, so I guess there's three people that just didn't weigh on his conscience anymore. He just didn't give a shit about it. Didn't care enough about them to enter them into this confession. Right. He also mentioned Stephen Crockett, Stephen Agin, and an unidentified white male he killed in May 1983, and another white male he murdered in April 1984 all of which he claimed he was assisted in the murders by Robert David Little, who Zellner called an unnamed individual still living in Indiana. According to Zellner, Eiler has stated that Little was the father figure he never had who provided Eiler with financial support while he would bring home young men for sex and was manipulated by Little to start the violent killing in the first place and was aware of all of Eiler's crimes. By the end, Eiler had killed upwards of 23 young men and boys while engaging in his sadomasochistic fantasies. Although his confession was aimed at providing some amount of solace to his victims' families, nothing he could do would make up for the lives he and allegedly his accomplice destroyed during those two years of hell. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the American Serial Killer Guidebook and our deep dive into the killings and love triangle of Larry Eiler, who killed over 20 young men and boys of the LGBTQ community in a two-year period before finally being stopped. If any of you taskers have any information regarding the Eiler killings, recommendations for an episode, or you just want to say hey, you can message us on social media or email us directly at elton at or cherish at tashg.net. Make sure to check out next week's episode when we will be discussing Jerry Brudos. And you guys are definitely going to want to check that episode out. This guy was a prolific, vicious serial killer. Um, not only would he rape and murder young women, but he would hang them on meat hooks in his house with his wife and children home. He had his own murder room downstairs. And this guy was a necrophiliac, so he liked to collect... 
women's underwear and bras and things like that. He liked to dress the bodies up and have sex with the bodies. Then he'd change out their clothes have sex with the bodies again and he'd do that over and over again over the course of a few days before getting tired of them or you know the body starting to rot and then he'd go dump them then he'd start his sickness all over again make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode about your favorite serial killers recommend us to family and friends and leave us a rating and review thanks again loyal taskers and we can't wait to fill your ears with murder and mayhem again next week